Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, we appreciate you joining us as you do each and every week. And obviously, a special week this is with Memorial Day just in our rearview mirror. And everything we try to do and accomplish here on this podcast is kind of in that vein of Memorial Day, just remembering and honoring the sacrifice and service of so many people, so many men and women who have decided to put on a uniform and make this uh, their calling, part of their lives, part of their career. And so uh, we got a great episode for you guys this week, uh, another Medal of Honor recipient, just an incredible story. We'll get to that coming up, but want to remind you guys about our partnership with Amazon, which is continuing just to just kick ass. I mean, I absolutely think we are doing such a great job, and you guys actually are doing such a great job, because all you got to do is go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. Do your normal Amazon shopping as you always would. And we get a percentage of what you guys spend. We take that money and we donate it right back to some of the great charities you've heard here on the Hazard Ground. I think you may have heard us tell you in the past couple of weeks, we've made another donation to the Headstrong Project, which was featured here by Joe Quinn on the Hazard Ground. So thank you guys so much for all the effort you're putting in. Make sure you guys follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. And one more final note, uh, you may notice that some of our logos are changing and We are about to launch here in the next couple of weeks a brand new logo and a brand new website. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, Don't be alarmed. It it is new. It will change. We've just decided to update some stuff and make it a little bit more modernized and, and something a little bit more I guess, kind of thematic, if you will, with what we do here at the Hazard Ground. So stay tuned for that. Uh, by the way, leave us a rating and a review. We told you last week about a review from somebody who decided to join the Air Force just because they've been listening to the Hazard Ground. So keep up the great work, guys. Uh, don't forget to send us an email, producer at hazardground.com. Give us some ideas. Let us know what potential guests you'd like to see or a story that you know or somebody you know personally that would be a great guest featured here on the Hazard Ground. All right, I've done enough. Uh, let's get on to this week's episode. Very excited about this week's guest as we go back to the greatest generation. He is a former Marine who fought in the Battle of Iwo Jima on October 5th, 1945. He received the Congressional Medal of Honor from President Harry Truman, where he is now the sole surviving Marine from World War II to wear the Medal of Honor. He is former Marine Herschel Woody Williams joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Woody, welcome. Thank you for being here. Well, my pleasure, absolutely. All right, Woody, well, let's start back because you grew up uh, in in a small town in West Virginia. uh, And, you know, again, you mentioned your age. have to go back to 1923. Did you know you wanted to be uh, in the Marines as a young man, or did it just come about because World War II came about? Well, basically because World War II came along, because during my growing up period, I grew up on a dairy farm way out in the country. We didn't even have a radio. So the, we didn't get any news from anywhere. And uh, we did have a telephone, but the telephone was a line with just in the community. And uh, we had a switchboard at a certain location in a little store. So if we wanted to call our next door neighbor or somebody a mile away, then we would call the switchboard and say, would you please ring whoever we were trying to call? 
So we didn't have any long-distance phone calls and <clears throat> information. We didn't have a newspaper. So information was very, very limited. And we very seldom in our area of quiet Dell, West Virginia, Marion County, uh, we very seldom ever saw anybody in uniform. It just We had no military people around us, no military bases in West Virginia. So we very seldom ever saw a person dressed as a soldier. And we did have two guys in the community back during the mid-30s when the Depression was on. Jobs were extremely uh, scarce. Those two individuals joined the uh, Marine Corps actually to make a living. And at that time, they only had one enlistment period, six years. When you signed your, your name to the document, you were gone for six years. And they got home one time a year on what was known in those days as a 30-day furlough. That was the only time they got home in the year. And they would not be there at the same time. They they were stationed in different places, so they would get their 30 days at different times of the year. But they were in the Marine Corps, and they had, they were required to wear their dress blues all the time they were on that 30-day furlough. The Marine Corps, I have been told, was using that as a means of advertising right. to encourage others to join the Marine Corps because the dress blue uniform was so much more um, in appearance, so much more handsome than that ugly army uniform <laughs> that they had during the Depression. It was an old wool uniform that you couldn't keep a press in it if you wanted to. Right, right. So that's what encouraged me to be a Marine is because of the dress blues. Well, in December of 1941, you're an 18-year-old kid, and obviously the attack on Pearl Harbor, you know, changes the world dynamically for everybody, literally. But do you remember that day? Do you remember where you were? you remember what you heard about it? Absolutely, I do. I was, I joined as my, I have met a brother, next brother up, um, joined the Civilian Conservation Corps, what was known back in those days as the Three Cs. And he joined the, the uh CCCs, and he was stationed. He got sent to a base in West Virginia. And I was, of course, only 16 years old at that time. But <clears throat> when I got to be uh, almost 17, I could go in the Civilian Conservation Corps without my mother's consent. My father died when I was 11. So my brother occasionally would get home. And when he did, he would have a few dollars in his pocket, and we didn't have two pennies to rub together. So I decided I'm going to go in the Civilian Conservation Corps also because he's got money. If he gets money, I get money. And I thought I would go to the same place he was in West Virginia, but much to my surprise, I was sent all the way to Whitehall, Montana. Wow. Which was very small western town. I only had two businesses in the whole community. And the, the Civilian Conservation Corps there, what we were doing was cutting posts, fence posts, 
to fence in government reservations. And that's where I was on December the 7th, 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Never heard of Pearl Harbor, had no idea where it was, knew nothing about why it was bombed. We were about 265 of us in that camp from all over, New Jersey, New York, West Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania. And they called us all out into a group and told us that America had been bombed and we were going to war. And we had a, had a choice. If we wanted to, and we were over 18 years of age, since the CCCs were run by the U.S. Army, we could go directly into the Army if we were over 18 years old as a private. But if we were under 18, then we would have to have parent consent. I'm not quite 18 yet. I'm still 17. And... <clears throat> Uh, naturally, they wouldn't take me, so they sent me home with the idea that I would go in the military when I got home to protect my country. Right. And when I got home, I was still only 17, and went to my mother and asked her if she would sign a paper to permit me to go, and she said absolutely not. She was still trying to run a dairy. It helped. And I was part of that help. Then when I was 18, one month after my 18th birthday, I said, I'm going into the Marine Corps. And I went to the Marine office and filled out a piece of paper to say I wanted to go. And the Marine recruiter looked at it, looked at me and said, sorry, fella, I can't take you. You are too short. What? Really? Yeah, they had a height requirement at that time. You had to be 5'8 or better to get into the United States Marine Corps. And how tall were you at the time? I was only 5'6". Okay. So that was in November of 1942, after my 18th birthday. Then in the early part of 1943, the Marine Corps already were having a lot of casualties as a result of Guadalcanal and Peleliu and the South Pacific. So they were going to need more people. They took the height requirement down to 5'2 or better. That permitted the recruiter then to take <clears throat> people shorter. So he came and looked me up at the farm and asked me if I still wanted to go in the Marine Corps. And I said, Absolutely. So there was no deterrence, even though you had seen people were coming home dying and, you know, the war was on two fronts right now, both in Europe and in the South Pacific, and it never deterred you. Now, now we weren't sending our people home in World War II. We did not return our dead. We kept them overseas. So we didn't see any of that during World War II. Yeah, but you, you had to know people were dying, though, correct? Well... Not for sure, because we didn't have a newspaper, we didn't have a radio, we knew a war was on. Right. But that didn't mean a whole lot to us, because my thinking was, uh, I didn't know anything about the South Pacific, I never heard tell of it, I didn't even know we had one. <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't know they were going to send me over to the South Pacific to fight the Japanese, <clears throat> 
I'd never heard of the Japanese. I didn't know who they were, except there were uh, people trying to take over our country, and I went into the Marine Corps to protect my country and my freedom. I didn't go in there to fight and kill people. That wasn't my goal. And I don't think that was the goal of most of we who are not educated in, you know, near military uh, installations or military background. I had nobody in my family on either side that had ever been in the military service. So we knew nothing about it. Wow, it's amazing. Amazing, yes. But once we got into boot camp, we were being trained then by those Marines who had been to the South Pacific, Guadalcanal and Peleliu and some of the others. They sent those guys back to be uh, drill instructors because they knew what war was about. Woody, when you started hearing about what was going on over there from these drill instructors who came back, did you think you made a bad decision? Oh, no. No, no. Never entered my mind because my country was the most important thing, my freedom, and whatever it took, I'm going to join everybody else to protect it. So, no, no hesitancy whatsoever. All right, so you finished boot camp. What happens next? Do, do you immediately ship out overseas, or do you go to a base here in the States? Well, I first went to a little base in California. Out of I, I took my boot camp in California, mm-hmm. and I went to a little base not far from California that uh, taught how, was teaching us how we could work with tanks. In other words, uh, if, if you have a tank, you, you have to know how to work with that tank. And they have a place called tank, uh, uh, Jack's, J-A-Q-U-E-S, Jack's Tank Farm. So they sent us there for a period of about 60 days to teach us how to work with a tank. Then they took us from there to Camp Pendleton, California, where they really began teaching us how to be an infantryman and how to fight a war. So we did that there. I graduated uh, boot camp in uh, July, and they did that until uh, December. And December 43, they loaded all of us, a whole group, back the whole 3rd Marine Division, and uh, uh, sent us to the Pacific. All right, so where do you land in the Pacific, and uh, what are you told? What's your mission? We landed first at a place called um, New Caledonia, which was a replacement uh, shipping out area. They uh, they all went to New Caledonia. Then whatever division or unit needed fill-in because of loss of casualties, uh, they would ship a group to that particular group. And I was uh, shipped to the 3rd Marine Division, who was at that point in time fighting on Bougainville. And we were headed to go to Bougainville to fill in the vacancies there to help take or secure Bougainville. But they sent us through the island of Guadalcanal. And on Guadalcanal, we continued to train, and that's where I first was selected to be a flamethrower demolition operator. As a rifleman up until that point. But then the flamethrower came out for the first time. We'd never seen one. 
didn't know what it was or how it operated or anything else. But we got them in January 1944 and began training on them, and they just said, you, you and you, you're going to be a flamethrower operator. And uh, that's how I was selected. So with so that, trained, go ahead, I'm sorry, no, yeah. Trained then on Guadalcanal in flamethrower demolition until June, and then they, we shipped out to go to actually in support of the, the 2nd Marine Division that was taking Saipan, in case we were needed, we weren't. So then they shipped us to Guam so we could take Guam back that had taken from, that the Japanese had taken from us in 1942. So that was my first campaign was taking the island of Guam, our own country, our own possession back. What was combat like for you? Scary. Uh, highly emotional, uh, but you're determined, you're trained, and thank the Lord we do have people that that know how to train other people. You were trained that uh, you never give up, you never quit, you never back off, your job is to win, period. What was it like sustaining casualties during that first battle for Guam that you were in? Uh, that it certainly is very emotional. You do get very, very close to each other because you know that your life depends on the other guy. His life depends on you. You build that bond between yourselves that you do almost anything, not only to preserve your own life, but make sure that the other guy didn't lose his life. Uh, when I was selected to be a flamethrower operator, I was actually a BAR man, Browning Automatic Rifleman. And <clears throat> the guy that took my place, filled in my slot when I was selected as a flamethrower operator, was on Guam with us, and of course, I killed there. So had those circumstances not changed, I would have been the guy that would have been the guy that lost his life on Guam. I would have been in that same position that he was in because that was his job and that's where I would have been. So uh, fate works in very strange ways. And uh, those things uh, are extremely emotional and gut-wrenching when they happen. But you can't let fear overtake you. If you let fear overtake you, you are useless. You cannot operate under the uh, atmosphere of uh, or, yeah, the atmosphere of fear. You can't do it. You can't operate. Amazing stuff. I like just, you know, the, the, the kind of randomness of combat. We talk about it all the time, Woody, and, and uh, you kind of hit it on it right there that sometimes it's not even up to you. You know, you're just in the, in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time, and that ultimately decides what your fate is. That's exactly right. Exactly right. When I hit the beach at, uh, at Iwo Jima, I had six flamethrower demolition uh, Marines under my control. I was a corporal, and they were PFCs and privates, and I had six of those individuals that I was responsible for, uh, not only to 
make sure that they are that they do their job, but that they have everything they need to do that job with. So I assigned two of them, my uh, battalion, I assigned two of them with each of the uh, companies. <clears throat> and their job, if the platoon leader or the company commander needed a, a flamethrower operator or a demolition operator to do something, he would call on them. Otherwise, they're they're a rifleman, just like every other Marine. And I, the, we got there on the 21st of uh, February, and by the 23rd, they were gone. I, and I never did know whether they were killed or wounded, but they were gone. And I'm the only guy left in my company as a flamethrower demolition trained individual. So that's why I volunteered. In a sense, I volunteered. My commanding officer, uh, Captain Donald Beck, said, do you think you can do something with a flamethrower against the pillboxes that's got us all stopped? We'd, we just lost cuckoo Marines before. And and I'm, I said, my, somebody said I said, I don't even know what I said, but somebody said I to him, I'll try. So I took the flamethrower and got me some other Marines to help me, and off I went. I, I'm doing my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. And, and the events you're talking about, for those, let me just catch up the listeners here real quick, Woody. On, on February 23rd, 1945, uh, you guys were at the Volcano Islands on Iwo Jima, uh, and, and this is where you know the beginning of the events are for which you were eventually awarded the Medal of Honor for. Um, so you, you have to eliminate all these concrete pillboxes and buried mines and black volcanic sands and all the other stuff that's in your way. You start doing that. Um, how successful is it? And kind of take me through the events that come up, come up next. Well, um, quite naturally, I could not do it alone. And there's very few things that we can do in life totally alone. We have to have some help. So the, the captain, uh, told me that I could take four Marines. I could select four Marines to help me. And I did. I selected two from my own platoon that I knew very well. And then I selected two other Marines that I never even, I, I didn't know who they were. Uh, by that time, we were so chaotically mixed up. Uh, we, we'd lost all formation of, uh, of people because of casualties and losses. So there were two Marines there, and I said, you and you, come with me, and Marines follow orders. So uh, I uh, put put them in a position where they could shoot at the pillbox that I was select to try to reach with, to get flame inside to kill the enemy within. And two of those individuals, two of those Marines lost their lives that day. They they made the the ultimate sacrifice protect me. Do you remember their names, Woody? I do have their names. Uh, it was until October year ago, this past October year ago, is the first time that we really learned who they were. And it was uh, by a method of 
calculation, I guess you would say, because when the records were checked, and somebody else did all of this, I didn't. I'm, I'm not that smart. But somebody checked the records, went back to that day, and at that particular time in that location, two Marines were killed. And uh, it had to be it had to be them. That that is the final deduction that was made. Uh, so I finally got their names. And uh, when I was in California a year before last, uh, we did a memorial at uh, San Diego on boot camp. San Diego Marine Base in their honor. Is it emotional for you to finally find out their names after all those years? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But not only was it emotional, it was extremely satisfying that I could finally know that those two individuals who sacrificed certainly more than I did and uh, make them possible for me to have received the Medal of Honor. Without my commanding officer recommending it, without four Marines in my unit being willing to testify as to what went on that day, I would not be the possessor of the Medal of Honor. Wow, powerful. All right, so take me back to where you are. You say you just lost two of those Marines uh, in the firefight, so what's going on next? Uh, well, I, the one of several things bothered me about that day, and I've talked to an awful lot of, I worked in Veterans Affairs for 33 years, so I've talked to thousands of veterans in my lifetime. And I find that <clears throat> I'm not the most unusual, because there are times when you're under extreme stress, and you are so concentrated on what you're doing, you don't even remember what you did. It's an amazing thing, and maybe that's a maybe that's a salvation for you that you don't remember all of it. But one of the things that has bothered me all of my life and still does, and I've talked to professional people and they don't have an answer either. Why can't I remember how I how I got? Uh, Five other flamethrowers. I used six flamethrowers that day. Now, flamethrower only lasts about 72 seconds, you know, but pretty, pretty short-lived. And <clears throat> But I used six flamethrowers that day. I eliminated seven or the enemy within seven pillboxes. Much of that day is absolutely a total blank. Now, there's some things that are so ingrained I can't get rid of it, but some of it I wish I could remember just to know how I did it, because I can't. I have no answer for that. But uh, without those Marines supporting me, when I would approach a pillbox, they're shooting at the, at the uh, aperture in the front of a pillbox. That's the only target they have. Because these other the people inside are protected by concrete, so they would shoot at the aperture in the pillbox to try to keep the enemy from being able to stick their weapons out the aperture and shoot at me. And uh, for whatever reason, 
in that four hours of time, I never got a scratch. They never, they never hit me. There is no explanation for it. Right, sure. Uh-huh. And correct me here, it just uh, for those listening who aren't familiar with pillboxes, they're just a concrete sort of bunker, correct? It was just nicknamed a pillbox. It's got a hole in the front, the aperture you were talking about, to put your rifle out and fire a position, but it's just a concrete uh, foxhole, so to speak, correct? Right. Okay. This guy that had Iwo Jima, no, he was educated in the United States, so he knew what, what we were doing, what we were facing, and he knew how to do these things that probably knew more about it than we did. But they put what we call rebar today. We didn't call it rebar back in World War II. It was just a, just a steel rod. But he put rod, many, many rods in that concrete so that a bomb or, or a bazooka or something of that nature wouldn't even affect it because it was so well supported by these rods. <clears throat> and uh, even though we would hit it with a or with a bazooka or a piece of artillery, didn't do anything. Right. So the only way to eliminate the person inside was to either get an explosion inside the pillbox or frame inside the pillbox. Same thing was true with the caves that we had on Evo. There were hundreds of caves on Evo. And they would hide in those things, and the only way you'd get to them was either to seal the cave or put flame down the cave to eliminate eliminate them that way. So, uh, but how, why I didn't get hit, why uh, or how I got my flamethrowers each time that needed to uh, eliminate the, the pillboxes, I have no explanation for that. I don't. Let me let me ask you if you remember these events specifically, because if you go through the citation on your Medal of Honor, it says at one point you mounted a pillbox and inserted the nozzle of your flamethrower through the vent, um, yeah. neutralizing the enemy, and then you yeah. charged enemy riflemen who, who attempted to stop you with bayonets and then, you know, eliminated that enemy with a burst from your flamethrower. Do you remember those events? I do remember those events. Okay. Yes, I do. I can remember trying to approach the pillbox that, that had the little smoke curling out of a vent on top. These people lived in there. In fact, some of those pillboxes were so so large uh, that they would put their people in there, and then they would seal the pillbox. They couldn't get out. They couldn't escape. So... <clears throat> They ate in there. They did everything in there. And uh, uh, they're uh, firing at us. They were firing at me with an Ambu machine gun, which is about like our thirty caliber. And uh, a number of them were firing because this aperture across the front of the pillbox is about 8 feet, 8 to 10 feet long. That's about 6 to 8 inches Wide. That was their. That's how they could stick their weapons out those uh, out that aperture, and have a complete field of fire in front of them. And all we had was that one place, one aperture to shoot at. Right. So 
they were shooting at me with an ambu, and I couldn't get to I couldn't get to the pillbox. And uh, like some of the slugs that they were firing at me, ricocheted off of my one of my flamethrower. Oh and wow! So that's when I saw that little bit of smoke coming out of the top of that pillbox, and there had to be an opening up there, or the smoke couldn't get out. That's pretty logical. Sure. So that's when I. Uh, and they piled sand on top of their pillboxes so that if you dropped a bomb or a mortar on it, it hit the sand, but it wouldn't hit the pillbox. Right. And, and this guy knew what he was doing, believe me. That's why we lost so many people and had so many wounded, because he, he planned this thing pretty well. So let me just draw the picture for the for the listeners here in case they have been following. So it's basically you and four riflemen under under a, intense amounts of enemy fire, and you are just running back and forth, grabbing flamethrowers, taking out pillbox after pillbox, enemy position after enemy position. A couple of your guys got lost along the way, but as you mentioned, you came out without a scratch. So how do you know kind of when the fighting for that day and that moment is done? I <laughs> I don't think I I don't think I did know that. I think the commanding officer knew that because what we were we had been trying to break through these pillboxes for a day and a half, and every time we would approach, we're crawling on our belly. We're certainly not walking upright. We're crawling on our bellies to try to get close enough to the pillbox, something inside to kill the enemy, and and. Insofar as the flamethrowers are concerned, here again, I don't remember how I got them. I am positive I wasn't running back and forth because they had the field of fire. I'm sure I was crawling more than I was walking. Right. And same thing is true when I was approaching a pillbox. I'm on the ground, not, not upright, because you make a pretty good target with, with three tanks hanging on your back. But <clears throat> the... Uh, the advantage that I had was the other Marines shooting at, at the aperture so that the Japanese within the pillbox couldn't just stand there and shoot at me without any uh, danger of getting hit themselves. So uh, when it was over, we had a, the seven pillboxes that were eliminated, or the enemy within, that gave us a very short, small opening that once we could advance toward that opening and get some Marines through to, to the backside of the pillboxes, then we had the advantage. Because they didn't have any way of shooting at us back there. Right. So that, that was the game plan, was to get through so we could get behind them. And it worked. At what point in time do you link back up with your commanding officer? Oh, immediately that evening. Okay. Absolutely. And so what does he tell you? Do you remember that conversation? Not a bit. Not a thing. <laughs> it's doing a job. I wasn't doing anything anybody else wasn't trying to do. So sure. No, no, I mean, we didn't sit down and discuss it at all. No. We're too busy. Uh, it, that that's late February 1945. About less than six months later, um, the the bombs are dropped on Japan. Uh, were you there for the entire time, or when do you actually kind of come back home? Uh, after Iwo Jima, 
we came back to Guam, but that's where we were when we left to go to Iwo Jima. Right. Our tent, our tents were still there. Our possessions were still in Guam. Uh, our sea bag and all of our other clothing and whatever. Uh, so we came back to the very same tent that we left. <clears throat> and when we got back, our complete uh, method of training changed. Previously, all we had trained for was jungle warfare, but that's all that was there. When we returned from Iwo, the uh, engineers, or we called them pioneers, but the engineers had constructed some false-funded buildings and made some things that supposedly represented a street so that we could start training for city-type fighting. Now, we didn't know where we were going. They didn't tell us that. But we were beginning to learn how do you go down a street as a squad or as a platoon? How do you approach a house? Uh, how do you get through a door or a window in a house? We began training that way because we were going to a city. On November the 5th, 1945, had the war not stopped, had they not dropped the bomb, my whole Marine Division, 3rd Marine Division and two others, would have ended up at Kyushu, taking the island of Kyushu, which is just uh, south of Japan. And we would have been street fighting. We would have been fighting people in the community. We would have been fighting kids, women, old folk, anybody because they were training everybody to protect their country, their location. And fortunately, the bomb, I have said over and over many times, can't prove it, the bomb saved my life. No, I, I mean, yeah, that's a... Uh... I wouldn't disagree with the sentiment. I mean, obviously you have more insight in it, but you know, from an outsider's perspective, I, knowing how we fight and how we train and uh, what we prepare to do against an enemy, it sounds like that was a daunting task you guys were heading for. Absolutely. It would have been. It would have been. So when do you get back to the United States? Uh, in September, early September, <clears throat> we're still in training, and I get a call from the first sergeant's office to come to his office. And uh, when I go in there, he said, uh, they want you up at the general's tent. Well, the general had a tent several miles from where I was. And I said, what for? And he said, I'm not going to use his language. But he said, I don't know. Uh, just go get your uh, khakis on. All we had over there were dungarees, which were our work clothes, and khakis that we stood inspections in. That's, that, that was our only uniforms. And this is still in Guam, correct? Yeah, this is on Guam. Okay. Yeah. Go get your khakis ironed up. We did have an iron in the tent, one iron for everybody. And we'd have to iron our clothes for Saturday morning inspection every week. And uh, so get your iron out, get your khaki ironed, and uh, come back because you're going to the general's tent. And then, so I did what I was ordered to do, and they came by and picked me up a... In a pickup, I mean, in a Jeep, took me to the general's tent. And, I, of course, I had never even been close to the general. <clears throat> uh, his name was Graves B. Erskine, and as far as I'm concerned, he was the highest we could get to. You know? 
So I went to his tent, and uh, he told me that I was being shipped back to the United States. I would be at the White House, and I was to receive an award. If he said the word Medal of Honor, I don't remember that. If he had said it, I didn't know what it was. I'd never heard tell of it. I had no concept of what it was. The only thing that really stuck with me was, I am going home. I'd been over there for almost two and a half years. I'm right. ready to go home. Yeah. So, and whatever else he said didn't register very well. <laughs> but uh, that's when they uh, uh, shipped me back uh, to uh, to the States. And there has been a number of Medal of Honor awards already approved by the president, but they were from Guam, Saipan, Iwo, and they were not calling people back from overseas just to give them the Medal of Honor. They were holding them till something else happened. So uh, I have no idea if the war had continued when we would have received the Medal of Honor. But uh, when since the war was over, well, they began calling us back, and there were 13 of us that day on the White House lawn, Marines and Navy corpsmen, to receive the Medal of Honor. It's unreal. Um, so, obviously, you know, just an unassuming kid from West Virginia meeting the president must have been a pretty big deal for you. Oh, I was absolutely scared to death. I really was. I don't know what adrenaline does for you, but uh, my body was shaking to the point that I could not actually control the shaking in my body. And uh, I couldn't uh, I, I couldn't even think of words to say. I certainly never thanked the president or anything else because I couldn't, I was so scared I couldn't talk. But uh, we had one fellow with us by the name of Jacqueline Lucas, Joined the Marine Corps at 14, received his Medal of Honor at his, when he was 17 years old, and he was there that day. And Jack is one of those guys that uh, never had a bashful day in his life and uh, was always boastful and outgoing. The president always had something to say to each recipient. Would say it in many different ways, but basically, thing that he had was I would rather have this medal than to be president. And uh, he said that Jack was about halfway through of the 13 of us. Uh, when he said that to Jack, Jack in a great big loud voice said to, back to the president, I'll trade you. <laughs> but I couldn't think of anything to say. I just stood there and shook. I never said anything to the president, but I was really scared. Do you remember if he said anything to you? Yeah, that's what he said to me, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. He said, I'd rather have this medal and be president. And the photo that we have, <clears throat> he's got his, he's holding it with his right hand, and he's got his left hand on my sh right shoulder in this photo, and I have jokingly said, I think the reason he had his right, he had his hand on my shoulder was to keep, Jumping out of my shoes because I was shaking so bad. <laughs>
That's amazing. Uh, what an incredible, you know, moment, obviously. Uh, and, and the fact that you got to share it with a lot of other people. And, uh, I mean, I, you know, w- words kind of fall short here to talk about, you know, what it's like to receive the Medal of Honor, obviously. But, you know, much more of your life after your military career was about helping veterans. Veterans, As you mentioned, you worked for the VA for 33 years. Um, you know, you, you're still very involved in veterans' uh, lives and things after the fact. Was there a reason you wanted to work for the VA, uh, or did that just kind of stumble on as a way to make a living after the fact? No, they. Uh, I, I was working at the time. I, I'd taken a job as a supply guy for some engineering outfit, construction outfit, and um, they called me and asked me if I wanted to, you know, be a veterans counselor to help veterans and their families. And I, I said, yeah. Well, of course, the thing that enticed me was mostly, was they said, well, this job pays $2,980 a year. Wow. And I had never heard of such much money. Wow. Good grief. I, I couldn't turn that down. So I, I would have taken the job. I don't care what they would have required me to do with that amount of money in those days. That was a big salary. Now, in- today, we're involved, we're involved in something that gives me Tremendous satisfaction and something that our country has failed to do ever until 2013. Oh, and that's what I was getting to next. In 2012, you founded the Herschel Woody Williams Medal of Honor Foundation, which helps Gold Star families uh, and create memorial monuments for them, correct? That is correct. Okay, so tell me more about the foundation, uh, why it started, how it started, everything. Well, uh, uh Prior to the time that we did the very first Gold Star Families Memorial Monument in West Virginia, on October the 2nd, 2013, the country had never done anything to honor the families of those who have sacrificed a loved one for all of us. We were recognizing pretty well over the country Gold Star Mothers. Many communities erected some sort of a memorial or tribute to a Gold Star mother. Nobody had ever mentioned, nobody ever talked about Gold Star Dad. The name was never mentioned. Uh, the, and I worked for about 15 years attempting to get a Gold Star Mother's Memorial in Washington, D.C., I could not get the support of my congressional people. I couldn't find a guy with enough money that was willing to put the bill. And after about 15 years, I had just pretty well given up. But I I just felt I'm not going to be able to do this. I've tried every angle I can think of. But I was speaking to a group of older folk. I was one of them, but I was speaking to a group of senior citizens. And I mentioned Gold Star Mothers, and we recognized several Gold Star Mothers in that particular group who had lost a loved one. And after it was over, a person, a man, walked up to me crying, tears rolling down his cheeks. And he, the only thing he said to me was, Dad's cry too. Wow. He had lost lost his son in Afghanistan, and his wife predeceased his boy going into the Army 
And so when he got, when the message came, the service knock on the door, he was the one that got the got the, got the message. And uh, he lived in a very small community. People had no idea what a Gold Star father was or what a Gold Star anything was. Had never heard of it. So he was pretty much alone in his community and didn't know how to handle the thing and what to do with it and nobody to talk to. And, you know, it, it was a terrible situation for him. So that's when I decided we've got to do something to honor families. But everybody in the family related to an individual certainly suffers grief when a loved one is lost in the armed forces of our country. And that's when I decided we had to do something for our people in West Virginia because we've got a memorial on our Capitol grounds that has 11,424 names on it. Every one of those individuals sacrificed their life in the military to us free and keep our country free. We had never done anything to honor the families of those individuals. This memorial was to honor our own West Virginia. We thought we were done once we got that dedicated. But the Internet picked it up. People saw it on the Internet. And the very second one that came into existence was at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. The son of a father who lost his life in Tom decided we've got to do something in our community like that. So he picked it up, ran with it. That was number two. Number three was at Tampa, Florida. Now there are 47. Somewhere in this country from Guam, I mean from Hawaii to California, York to Florida, Texas, the same the state. We're in 41 states right now. We'll get the others before we're finished. Just got a call day before yesterday that from the office of office of the mayor in Guam, or the governor rather, governor in Guam, they are going to put a gold star family memorial monument on the Capitol grounds of Guam. Wow! So it's constantly growing. Something that should have been done years and years ago, but yet we do not have one in. Washington. That's just, that's insane to me that of all the monuments and everything that they've done uh, and all the years that this nation has been at war, um, that they haven't come up with something like, it's just, it, it's almost mind blowing. It is. Absolutely. Absolutely. I certainly do not understand it because without families, you know, we, we would have never won the war. That's for sure. Well, Woody, I mean, it's it's almost like, you know, you fought two wars uh, and one more successful than the other. I mean, obviously, your accomplishments in Iwo Jima and the South Pacific are, are well documented, but uh, the impact that you're leaving beyond uh, may be even more significant than what you did in combat. Um, and, and these are memorials that are going to last and, and withstand the test of time. And, you know, I'm sure that you've served with other guys who have been awarded the Medal of Honor and they may be long forgotten about, but these monuments will always stand for the test of time. Absolutely. They'll be there from me on, you know. And uh, 
That's not, uh, the number of times that I've been to these dedications. I've been to every groundbreaking and every dedication except a couple. But <clears throat> when you hear one of the members of the family, a mother or a, a wife or some relative of the individual to say, oh, I'm so thankful for this because now I know my loved one will never be forgotten. How important that is. Beautifully stated, uh, powerful, uh, inspirational, all of the above. Uh, I can't thank you enough uh, for sharing your story and sharing your time. And uh, certainly uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and uh, I love the fact that uh, the the members of the greatest generation, uh, even though there are limited numbers left, you guys are still making an impact everywhere. Well, there now there are only three World War II Medal of Honor recipients still living. We lost one day before yesterday, but now there are three of us, and in just due time, there'll be no more. We're hoping that the president will issue a, a edict, an order that the last recipient of the Medal of Honor from World War II will lie in state, Washington, D.C., in honor of all of those who have already gone home. I can only hope that comes true. Woody Williams, thank you so much for your time, and thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. Now you can use your Contour voice remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox voice remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com thisishome today.